Judges chapter 3, we'll start here in just a moment in verse 12, pages 235 in your pew Bible. In 2004, a couple of doctors, Charlotte Fari and Michelle Raymond of the University of Montpelier in France, shared the results of a study they'd undertaken. The question that drove their study was whether or not being left-handed gave a person an advantage in a fight. And so they checked literature and police departments and did all types of field research, and they found that the more left-handers in a traditional society, the higher the homicide rate. So a prime example uh, is the Yanomamo people of South America. They have a murder rate of four murders per 1,000 people per year, and 22.8% of these people uh, in this population are left-handed. High left-handed population, high homicide rate. By contrast, the Diula people of Burkina Faso are virtual pacifists. Uh, there are only 0.013 murders per 1,000 inhabitants per year, and only 3.4% of that population is left-handed. The doctor's conclusion was this. While there is no suggestion that left-handed people are more violent than right-handed, it looks as though they are more successfully violent. Where are our left-handers today? A little show of left hands. Where's the left hands? All right. Everyone take note. Be nice to these weirdos. They could snap at any moment. I know these things. I'm married to a lefty. I'm here to testify this morning. The good guy in our story today is a left-handed man. And his left-handedness gives him a decided advantage, a violent advantage over Israel's enemy. It's a story of advantages. You and I as followers of Jesus, we also have advantages when it comes to defeating sin and walking in holiness in the way we live our lives. As I've spent time with this passage, over and over again, this, maybe this is just me being a bro, I don't know for sure, but as I read the passage we're going to study this morning, over and over again, it speaks to me themes of encouragement, themes of empowerment. It, here's a, a, an oppressed and a hurt people. Here's an unlikely deliverer. And for the person who reads about Ehud, the left-handed man, and studies this passage right, I, I think we come out on the other side with great encouragement in our own personal pursuit of holiness. What happens so often, I believe, is, is you and I will recognize sin in our lives. Having recognized that sin, we then are overcome with guilt. And then being overcome with guilt, overcome with guilt we then become stagnant, paralyzed. We just freeze up in our walk with Christ. But today, Judges chapter 3 gives us encouragement to keep moving. Judges chapter 3 tells us this, yes, We've got a sin problem. As a follower of Jesus, you still have a sin problem. And yes, you have decided advantages on your side in your battle against sin and in your pursuit of holiness. And so my purpose today is to encourage you to trust in the God of Judges 3, 12 through 30 in your ongoing pursuit of holiness. 
And I'm going to encourage you by showing you four advantages the believer has over sin from this passage. So I want you to follow along with me as I read Judges chapter 3, starting in verse 12. Once again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. Getting the Ammonites and Amalekites to join him, Eglon came and attacked Israel, and they took possession of the city of Palms. The Israelites were subject to Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. Again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and he gave them a deliverer, Ehud, a left-handed man, the son of Gera, the Benjamite. The Israelites sent him with tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Ehud had made a double-edged sword, about a foot and a half long, which he strapped to his right thigh under his clothing. He presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, who was a very fat man. After Ehud had presented the tribute, he sent on their way the men who had carried it. At the idols near Gilgal, he himself turned back and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. The king said, Quiet! And all his attendants left him. Ehud then approached him while he was sitting in the upper room of his summer palace and said, I have a message from God for you. As the king rose from his seat, Ehud reached with his left hand, drew the sword from his right thigh, and plunged it into the king's belly. Even the handle sank in after the blade which came out his back. Ehud did not pull the sword out, and the fat closed in over it. Then Ehud went out to the porch. He shut the doors of the upper room behind him and locked them. After he had gone, the servants came and found the doors of the upper room locked. They said, he must be relieving himself in the inner room of the house. They waited to the point of embarrassment. But when he did not open the doors of the room, they took a key and unlocked them. There they saw their Lord fallen to the floor dead. While they waited, Ehud got away. He passed by the idols and escaped to Syrah. When he arrived there, he blew a trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites went down with him from the hills, with him leading them. Follow me, he ordered, for the Lord has given Moab, your enemy, into your hands. So they followed him down, and taking possession of the fords of the Jordan that led to Moab, they allowed no one to cross over. At that time, they struck down about 10,000 Moabites, all vigorous and strong, Not a man escaped. That day, Moab was made subject to Israel, and the land had peace for 80 years. And whoever says the Bible is boring has not read Judges 3. Oh, my greasy. What an unbelievable story. I think when we read it, and you stop breathing through your mouth, you find encouragement. You find empowerment for an oppressed people. You find encouragement in your own personal battle against sins of every kind. Big sins and bigger sins, you find encouragement here. Let me share with you four advantages you, the believer, have in your ongoing battle against sin and your pursuit for, for holiness. Your four advantages are these. First of all, the believer feels sin's embarrassment. In your pursuit of holiness, in your battle against sin, it is a decided advantage that you feel the embarrassment of your own sin. 
Now, the first three verses of our passage here, they set the scene for us. You remember Othniel from last week. He's the first judge. Othniel dies. Israel chases after the false gods of the original inhabitants of Canaan around them. And because they do this, God gives them over to Eglon, king of Moab. Isn't Eglon a great bad guy name? No, no, no one sweet and wonderful is named Eglon. This is bad guy through and through. Now, Eglon's made out to be a fool in this story. We'll talk about that in just a second. Uh, but before he's made out to be a fool, he's also shown to be a pretty smart military guy. He doesn't just rally the troops of Moab and take on Israel. He forms an alliance with Ammonites and Amalekites. In essence, he has allies, and together the three of them surround Israel with their natural borders. And so he rallies these other people. They attack Israel, and then Eglon sets up shop in a place called the City of Palms. Now, your Bible ought to have a footnote next to that phrase, City of Palms, that says this is the city of Jericho. And this is a big deal that Eglon has set up shop in Jericho. You remember Jericho from the book of Joshua. This is the first city that the people of Israel come up against after they've crossed into the promised land. And God gives them these ridiculous sounding instructions to march around the city for several days and then to blow trumpets and yell. And when they did, the walls came a-tumbling down and they took possession of Jericho in a very violent manner. Jericho has been a place that tells the story of Israel's obedience and God's faithfulness but now, under Eglon, it's become a different narrative. It tells the story of Israel's disobedience in light of God's continued faithfulness. It's an embarrassment that Eglon reigns in Jericho. But once we're past this military description, then the real ridicule of Eglon begins in the story. At every description, Eglon is made out to be a ridiculous figure. Verse 17 tells us that he is cartoonishly large, so Eglon is physically laughable. Verse 19 tells us that when Ehud returns to Eglon, what does Eglon do with all of his servants and attendants? He tells them, everyone get out of here. He dismisses all of them and leaves himself alone with Ehud. This is a strategic error. He's physically laughable. He's also mentally laughable. Third, in verse 22, in his death, Eglon is utterly undignified. There's a problem with the NIV translation that I read to you this morning in verse 22. They sanitize the story, believe it or not. Now, if you have a different translation other than NIV, I want you to look at verse 22. There's a phrase at the end of verse 22 in your Bible that's not in the NIV Bible. If you have an ESV translation of Scripture, the line is this, and the dung came out. If you have a New American Standard, the line is this, and the refuse came out. And if you're rocking the old King Jimmy, the dirt came out out. So that's in the Bible. That's pretty awesome, right? Eglon is utterly humiliated in this story. And can you imagine if you are an Israelite hearing this story 
and seeing Eglon take beating after beating, you would be so excited. You would laugh. You would be so happy to see Eglon to be portrayed as so dumb and so humiliated in his death. And then you would remember that this giant oaf of a man has ruled over you for 18 years. The great embarrassment of this story is not Eglon lying dead in his mess. The great embarrassment of this story is the very opening line in verse 12. Once again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Israel's sin against God is far more embarrassing than anything that happens to Eglon in this story. That's where the embarrassment truly lies. That's where the shame ought to be felt for God's people. At this point, you and I might be inclined to speak about, yes, how disturbing it is that the culture around us does not feel the shame or embarrassment of sin. In fact, it seems that the culture around us celebrates sin. We could talk about how sad that is to us and how we need to turn things around. But this would be such a wasted conversation. It should come as no surprise to us that sinners love sin. It should come as no surprise that the culture around us embraces sin and resists righteousness. That's just what sinners in a non-believing world does. The problem in Judges 3 is not the sin of Moab. It's the sin of God's covenant people, Israel. You can be a card-carrying member of God's covenant people and still be enslaved to embarrassing sin. Gossip, slander, unforgiveness, hate, racism, uncontrolled anger, pride, hypocrisies of many kinds, It's an embarrassment for people who bear the name of the risen Savior to be enslaved by such things. Now, there's a part of us that wants to stay away from shame. And and to be sure, listen closely, I'm not saying Christians need to walk around beating ourselves up, just feeling horrible and being sad Eeyores all the time. That's, That's not what I'm saying. But I think there is wisdom in the Christian who on the one hand carries a holy disgust for their own sin while also recognizing that Christ bore our shame at the cross. It's to our advantage to be ashamed of our sin. It's to our advantage to feel the embarrassment of these things we say and do and think against the holiness of God. It's to our advantage to never grow comfortable with it but rather to follow hard after God every day that he gives us. You have an advantage against sin and for holiness as a follower of Jesus. That advantage is you feel the embarrassment of your sin. It leads us into a life of repentance. A second advantage you and I have as believers over our sin is this. Believers trust God and take action. Believers, trust God and take action. Verses 15 through 21 spell this out for us. Verse 15 tells us that the Israelites, under the oppression of Eglon, they cry out to the Lord and he gives them a deliverer. The deliverer is Ehud, 
the left-handed man, son of Gera, the Benjamite. I think we should all begin to identify ourselves in such a way. I am Cody, son of Donald. I think it carries weight, machismo with it. Try it later today. Ehud, he's a southpaw. He had to use special scissors growing up. He had to sit on the outside of the dinner table so he didn't elbow the righties. He wore his Fitbit on his right wrist like a total weirdo. Sure, he's able to make a dagger for himself, but he probably still had to use a right-handed can opener, right? I mean, life is against Ehud, this left-handed man. People who are smarter than us would tell us that the Hebrew phrase for left-handed is literally translated as one who is hindered in their right hand. That could mean that Ehud has some sort of physical disability, something wrong with his right hand or right arm, and that's why he had to be left-handed. That's what it could mean. It could describe why Eglon did not feel threatened to be alone in his throne room with Ehud. Could explain that. Or it could just be that he's got two healthy hands and his strong hand is his left hand. Now, Ehud, being raised up by God to be the deliverer of Israel, he's then sent by Israel to pay a tribute, a sacrifice, so to speak, to King Eglon. So he takes the opportunity to strap up with his dagger, puts it on his right thigh, because that's what a left-handed person would do. Puts it on his right thigh, loads up the tribute. They take the tribute. They deliver the tribute. He's standing right in front of King Eglon, and nothing happens. They give the gift. They leave. They start their journey back to wherever they began from. But then the passage tells us they get to a place called Gilgal. And at Gilgal, Ehud sees idols. And then he turns back and goes back to Jericho to see King Eglon. This little detail tells us that we are dealing with a master storyteller in Judges chapter 3. Gilgal is an important location for God's Old Testament people. It's the place where after they crossed the Jordan River... God does a miracle, holds the waters off. They cross the Jordan River on dry ground into the promised land. Gilgal is the place they first set up camp. And it's there at Gilgal that they took 12 stones and they stacked them in this sort of altar and they called them stones of remembrance. And any time you walk past the stones of remembrance at Gilgal, you would use that as an opportunity to tell the story of God's faithfulness to Israel God's power in parting the waters. This is the place. This water was parted. It was dry ground. Uh, Our people walked across in this very place. But what does Ehud see on this day? Not stones of remembrance. He sees altars to false gods. The action up to this point has been moving pretty rapidly. There's not a lot of detail given. He gives the tribute. He leaves He sees the idols at Gilgal. He turns around and immediately the passage puts him right in front of the king. But when we get to verses 20 and 21, everything begins to move in slow motion. The storyteller gives us graphic detail of every aspect of the story. Look at it with me. Look at verse 20. Look at how slow things go here, how detailed it is. Ehud then approached Eglon while he was sitting alone in the upper room of his summer palace and said... I have a message from God for you. As the king rose from his seat, Ehud reached with his left hand, drew the sword from his right thigh, and plunged it into the king's belly. 
every excruciating detail given to us in this moment. I think perhaps we learn from Ehud the value of action in our service to the Lord. I want you to consider all the action Ehud takes after being called by God to deliver Israel. He crafts a dagger. He conceals the dagger. He delivers the tribute. He dupes the king. He delivers the sword. He rallies the people and he routs the enemy. But this is not a story about Ehud's great strength or ability but his great trust in God as he carries out his tasks. Ehud does not merely pray and then wait for Eglon to vaporize or die of natural causes. He prays and then he gets to work. Right? The old parable is pray with your feet moving. That's what we have here in Ehud. Now to be sure, you and I as followers of Jesus are to be people of prayer. And there are things that you and I will pray about that we must leave in the omnipotence of God. Situations that are beyond our control to address, to fix, and prayer is our good and great work in those situations. There are other situations in which you and I would pray and trust the omnipotence of God and then you and I would get to work because many times we are the answers God is providing to the prayer needs we are lifting. So for example, I spoke with a friend one time who told me, Cody, I'm, I'm really frustrated. I cuss all the time. And I want to quit cussing. And I'm, I'm really kind of irked at God because I keep praying, God, take this from me. And he doesn't take it from me. Well, what's my sister's problem there? My sister in Christ, her problem is not with a God who's not attentive or active, She's done right in praying, God, take this, but she's shortchanged the process by not focusing on her obedience. And so if you struggle with habitual sin, you pray and you get to work on your obedience. If you want your kids to love the Lord, you pray and you teach them to love Jesus Christ. If you want to see lives changed by the gospel, you pray And you share the gospel. We trust God. We take action in our pursuit of holiness, in our desire to overcome sin. This is how the Christian walks. We pray. We trust. We take action in these things. Our fight for holiness requires us to do this. God changed me. And then in the power that God provides, we live in the change that he gives us. You've got advantages over sin in your life. One is you feel sin's embarrassment. Two, you trust God and you take action. Three, believers rest in God's justice. Believers rest in God's justice. Verses 19 through 25. Eglon has consumed Israel for 18 years. And then he meets his end with one well-placed dagger. The details are graphic. First goes in the blade and then goes in the handle. It all sinks into Eglon and then Eglon sinks in death. When his servants 
can't get an answer from him from outside the locked doors. They assume he's using the restroom. They wait an embarrassing amount of time before unlocking the doors, and there they find their Lord dead in the floor. Now, it's very possible that some among us might find this story mildly distasteful, right? No one's painting their nurseries in an Ehud theme. Eglon's death isn't as tidy as we would like. Why do we need all these gross details? Maybe the NIV didn't go far enough in sanitizing the story. But for you to experience this story in full, you have to read it from the perspective of an oppressed Israelite, not the perspective of a prim and proper Hingamite. As a little boy, I loved pro wrestling. And I always cheered for the good guys. I always cheered against the bad guys. And it wasn't, the best wrestling matches, the biggest moments weren't just when the good guy won, but when the good guy won and then the bad guy was utterly humiliated. So Hulk Hogan body slams Andre the Giant at WrestleMania before throwing the leg drop on him and pinning him. It's huge. It's ma- this is a big deal. The bad guy's humiliated. The good guy wins. That type of thing is happening in the telling of this story. An oppressed people see their oppressor utterly humiliated. And in God's justice, they find great joy, even great comfort. Now, when we want comfort from the Lord... We will call on normally His love, His grace, His mercy, but we can also find comfort in God's justice. Here's what I mean. Every Eglon will face a right and terrifying judgment from God. ISIS, Boko Haram, every bomber of concerts, those who prey on the innocent, perpetrators of violence, every Eglon will face the right and terrifying judgment of God. God does not leave sins unpunished. He does not just forget and vaporize it. We often will ask the question, why do the righteous suffer while the wicked prosper? I'm telling you the prosperity of the wicked is a sham. And apart from Jesus Christ, they will eat fire for eternity. Now at this, we don't necessarily jump up and run a victory lap. But for those who have been oppressed, those who have been victims, those who have been broken by the actions of others, know that God judges all sin rightly, terrifyingly, eternally, And his justice will be true and right. It's comfort for those who carry wounds that go back to their childhood. It's those who have been in the crosshairs of sick and twisted people. God does not forget your case. And his justice is a sure source of comfort for afflicted people. So here's some advantages you have in your battle against sin and your pursuit of holiness. You feel sin's embarrassment. You trust God and take action. You rest in God's justice. Fourth and finally, believers walk in God's victory. 
Verses 26 through 30, believers walk in God's victory. Our story ends in a fantastic way. Ehud blows the trumpet, calls to him Israelites from all around, amasses this army, and then in verse 28, he gives the key line, the vital way of understanding what's about to happen. Verse 28, he says, follow me, for the Lord has given Moab, your enemy, into your hands. Pay close attention to Ehud's words here. He speaks with a sense of finality, as if the matter's already settled. The Lord has given Moab into your hands. He doesn't say, come with me, God's given me a secret weapon. Come with me, I have the strategy. Hey, you guys can do it, I believe in you. That's not what he says. This thing is settled. The Lord has given Moab into your hands. This thing is done, all you gotta do is go and take what God has already given you. So they do. How effective are the Israelites when the Lord has given Moab into their hands? The passage tells us they strike down about 10,000 Moabites and they're described as all vigorous and strong. They don't catch the Moabites on the day when the flu is going through the camp. They catch them at peak strength and it is as if there is no enemy at all. Now, did you notice something missing from this section of the story, this battle scene? There's no description of the might of the Israelite army. No description of their military cleverness. No ancient Near East shock and awe. All we have is Ehud saying, God has given them to you, and then a description of Israel taking what God has given So God's normal pattern might be to work through his people. But since you and I have a tendency to obscure God's splendor and to steal his praise, sometimes God will set our contributions aside so that we and others can see that this kind of power comes only from God. At the end of this story, we don't say praise Israel whose military is great and mighty. We say praise God who gave Moab into their hands. This wasn't Israel's victory. It was Yahweh's victory. And this scenario is not something new. God had long prepared his people for the day when they would face an enemy greater than them. In Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 1, God tells Israel this, when you go to war against your enemies and you see horses and chariots and an army greater than yours, do not be afraid of them. Because the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt will be with you. So Christian, do not despair over your sin. If the Lord who brought Israel out of Egypt delivered them from Moab, how much more will the same God who gave you his son deliver you from your sin? You can count on it. He's going to keep that promise from Deuteronomy 20. He fulfills it in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And you, by faith, reap the benefits of God's victory. When we talk about getting an advantage over sin, being successful in the battle against sin, that only happens when you and I have trusted in the one who has conquered sin once and for all. The one we sang about this morning, the one we will eat and drink in remembrance of here in a little bit, and that one is Jesus Christ who laid down his life as the sacrifice for your sin. And he died your death so that you could live his life. 
His death is in your place. His righteousness becomes your righteousness. When you stand before God in judgment, He looks at you and He doesn't judge you according to your good versus your bad. He judges you, follower of Jesus, based on the righteousness and the holiness of Christ. That's perfect, without blemish. No doubts there. Sin has been conquered once and for all. And that victory is yours today as you trust in Christ and you walk with him step by step. So I hope you're encouraged by Judges chapter 3 this morning, this story about Ehud, because you have such distinct advantages over sin and in pursuing holiness. Here's what you have as a follower of Jesus. You feel sin's embarrassment. You trust God and you take action. You rest in God's justice and you walk in God's victory. And the reasons that these things are encouragements for you is because they find their fullness in Christ. He's the one who suffered shame in full at the cross. Jesus is the one who took action by laying down his life on your behalf as your sin sacrifice. Jesus is the one who executes justice perfectly. And in Jesus, death has been swallowed up in victory. We can give thanks to God for he gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Judges chapter 3, on this side of Easter, it calls us to Jesus. Calls us to the one who's better than a left-handed deliverer. Calls us to the one who is the nail-scarred Savior. The right response to Judges 3 is, Jesus, I'm coming to you. I'm trusting in you. And I'm going to move forward in holiness as I battle sin day by day. Those who trust in Jesus are victorious with Jesus. Judges 3 calls you to trust him today. Would you pray with me, please? Father, we thank you for a story like this. Ehud is not the deliverer we would have chosen, nor was Jesus the deliverer we would have chosen. Ehud's Schemes are not the means we would have chosen, nor would we have invented the cross as a way for us to find salvation. Ehud's story is not one that's easy for us to tell. Likewise, the gospel is foolishness to those on the outside. But we're grateful that you are God, consistent and true, gracious, merciful, mighty to save your children. Thank you for hearing us as we cry out to you from our sin. Thank you for the grace that interacts with us before we even know we need rescuing. So God, I pray this morning for my brothers and sisters who struggle with sins of all kinds. Holy Spirit, press in conviction in those areas where we are not living in line with your word. Holy Spirit, lead us into the truth of repentance, into a long repentance and encourage us by what we've seen in your word today. God the Son, we praise you that you have made the sacrifice once and for all that does away with the power of sin in our lives. God the Father, would you draw us close in faith, awaken faith in us today that we would trust you and call on the one who has rescued us once and for all. For my brothers and sisters in here, give them encouragement and strength. For my friends in here that don't know you as their Savior, I pray that what they've seen in Judges 3 is a God of grace, a God of might, a God who is present with his people, a God who is already victorious 
and in Christ, one who gives salvation to all those who call on his name. Lord, we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.